All right, so I'm going to read really quick this parable, and then I'll give you a little bit of a historical setup to it, because um, there is some history behind this that a lot of us are probably unaware of because it's not in the text. Um, but it's something that was happening in that time, in that culture, and um, it's going to help us set up and give us a clear understanding of why Jesus uses this um, parable or analogy story. And So Luke chapter 19, verse 11 says, Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and because they, taught the, they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants to deliver them to them ten minas and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your minna has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your minna has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your minna, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the minna from him, and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who was, who has, will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, and slay them before me. Ooh, man, that's it's a lot happening in there. It's a lot to take in. Um, it's a lot to be confused by. Um, but I think this is a, a very clear picture of the gospel, and there's, there's two types of people, or really three types of people. Um, there's the servants who do something with the gospel, and there's those who are servants who, I would say, false servants who do nothing with the gospel, and then there's those who oppose the king, right? And obviously there's consequences for those who oppose the, the king. Um, and he says at the very end, which is kind of harsh, he says, uh, slay them before me, All right? This is... And what we're going to see as we, we pick this up and we go through this is that this nobleman who retreats away and goes to a faraway country to receive his kingdom, who is this a picture of? Who is this symbolize? Jesus, right? This is Jesus. Now, you might be thinking that this is very similar to another story, another parable you've heard, right? You guys have heard the parable of the talents where Jesus gives a certain amount of talents to a certain amount of people and they, they either do stuff with it or they don't. We see this in Matthew chapter 25. These are two separate parables, okay? They actually happened at two separate times. There's two separate meanings behind them. Even though they are, sound very similar, they're different. Because what I believe, as we study contextually through Matthew 25 with uh, the parable of the talents, the talents that are given to the believers, I believe, are, are gifts, right? Like, each of us have a different set of gifts, 
correct? Like, especially spiritual gifts. We all have different spiritual gifts. None, no one of us are the same, right? And then the amount of giftings that we give, I believe, is, is also different. But here what we see in the story of the minas is that each one gets the same exact amount, right, of the same thing. Well, the talents, it was different amounts. But here he gives out 10 minas to 10 people, so each get one mina. And a mina is about three months' wages, okay? If it's what you're trying to figure out. It's three months' wages. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a value amount. It's a dollar or to our dollar. So they're given this, all the same, all equal. What is the one thing given to us by God that is, that is the same across the board for every servant of, of Jesus Christ? It's the gospel, right? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are all given that beautiful and wonderful gift and it's a matter of what do we do with that? Because here in this parable, the, the nobleman is, is looking for faithfulness, right? What have you done since I'm gone? What have you done with this minna? Because I'm expecting something to have been done, right? At the very least, the nobleman says to the wicked servant, you could have at least deposited it within the bank, right? And it would have occurred interest. You could have done even the simplest and smallest of things, but rather you disobeyed and did nothing, right? And that's where I would say that this servant is a false servant. And we see this often within the Gospels, that there's many people who say, Lord, Lord, but Jesus says, depart from me because I never knew you, right? You did all these things in my name, but it meant nothing, right? Very similar to when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that if you do all these things without love, well, you sound like a clinging symbol, right? You could have all the truth, and all the knowledge, but if love is not attached to it, it means absolutely nothing, right? So he is challenging us here in this parable to be faithful servants. And one of the things that I want to see as we go through this, as you see the title of this, is it's important to see what Jesus says, okay? And I want to encourage you this as, as, as much as I can, that when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to our understanding of God, we have to see what Scripture says, okay? Okay? not what we think God is or who he is, right? We have to see contextually from beginning to end, not just one verse, not just one chapter, not just one parable, but from Genesis to Revelation, God has given us the fullness of himself, everything that we need to know about him, right? And so I'll get to that in a minute or a little bit later, but it's important that we understand what he says and that we do what he says, right? Because the servant here, he thought, well, I, he says, I thought you were an austere man, right? A strict man, a hard man. So because of that, this is what I did. And then the nobleman's like, no, you disobeyed. You didn't do what I said, right? Because what does the nobleman say? There's one key thing that he tells um, his guys to do. He says in verse 13, do business till I come, right? Do business until I come. That was the command, right? You either do it and obey, or you don't do it and you disobey, right? And the same thing goes with us, guys. God has given us commands as followers of Jesus, and we're to be obedient to what he says, right? He has given us exact commands and what to do. So the historical setup is this. About 30 years before Jesus even shares this parable uh, with the people as he's making his way to Bethlehem um, or to uh, Jerusalem. Jesus is, is initially, we know Jesus is born in Bethlehem, 
right? And what happens after that is he moves away because Herod is trying to kill all the newborn or young, young boys, right? So his parents take him away, they leave. And what happens is Herod eventually dies, the kingdom becomes a mess, and Herod promises to give his son, Antipas, the kingdom. But what ends up happening two weeks before he dies, he changes his mind and he says, I'm going to give it to Archelaus. Okay, that's his son. And Archelaus, as we know, Herod was a bad king, right? I mean, like, he murdered tons of baby boys, right? Just because he was threatened by, by his, his position, okay? So then his son comes on the scene after he dies, and he takes power, and he takes position. But one of the things that they had to do is because the Romans were overrule of the Jews, is that they had to seek permission from the Romans to even be in that, that position, to have that authority. So what happens, even though that, that Herod says, okay, my son Archelaus can be the next king, Archelaus actually has to go away, and he has to secure approval from the Romans to be crowned the king officially. So he travels to Rome, he meets with Caesar. After a long you know, court case or talking between the two, it's finally decided to give Archelaus the kingdom. And Matthew actually records this a little bit in Matthew chapter 2, verse 22. It's the only verse that we see Archelaus even mentioned. It says in verse 22, But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. This is speaking of Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. And he says, And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And so this is how Jesus ends up being raised in Nazareth, right? So because they were trying to avoid Archelaus, who was a harsh dictator. There was at one point where he, he killed about 3,000 Jews just because, right? So, so understanding this, it gives us a picture of, okay, the Jews understand this. This is already in, ingrained in them. They, they know where this parable is going. The one thing that they don't know, or some may do know because it's a parable, this isn't a mention of Archelaus. It's not a, the nobleman is not Archelaus. It's Jesus, right? But there's this correlation that they see happening. So in verse 11, it says, now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable, right? This was just after meeting with Zacchaeus, right? And, and saving Zacchaeus on his way to Jerusalem. He was in Jericho. It says, because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So verse 11 gives us the, the why. Why does Jesus share this parable? Well, they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Right? That is what the Jews thought. That's what they believed, and that's what they hoped in. Why did they want the kingdom to appear immediately? Yeah, because they were suppressed by the Romans. Right? We just, I just mentioned that. Like, they couldn't do things apart from the Romans' approval. Right? Even their taxes went to Rome. I mean, they, they, were, they were enslaved in a sense, and they wanted freedom from that. They wanted political freedom, right? I mean, even in a sense now, we want Jesus to come back, you know, to set up his kingdom to, to free us from things. But here, that's what, exactly what they wanted. They thought that when Jesus said that I am the son of God, that he was going to set up his kingdom right there and then and overthrow the Romans, and that his kingdom would be established there, immediately. That's what they wanted. But in this picture, in the parable, he, he, he's alluding to, pretty clearly, that the kingdom is not now, it's later. Right? The nobleman leaves. 
right? To do what? To go get his kingdom and to return. We see this over and over again. We saw this in chapter 17 when we talked about the, the difference or the, the um, different characters of, of the kingdom of God. Um, but there's this pattern here of Jesus' second coming that we don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know when it's going to happen. And so there's two things there's two things that Jesus highlights every time he mentions his second coming or the kingdom of God coming. The two things are the cross and being prepared for when he comes back. Right? Those are the two things. We see that in chapter 17. We see it here again in chapter 19. So the two reasons Luke gives us for Jesus telling his parables. One, he's near Jerusalem. Right? He's coming near Jerusalem, which means that the cross is coming, that he's about to lay down his life. And two, again, because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. And we know that's not the case, that it will take some time, and we don't know when that time is. We can have a, a, a somewhat of an understanding of what events should take place before he comes, and we have a better understanding of when he will come, but at the same time, we don't know the hour of which he comes. And so all throughout the Gospels, it encourages us to live lives that are worthy of when he returns. Live lives that are faithful and prepared, right, to not have, be caught with your pants down. Right? That when he comes back, that we're being faithful. Right? I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, if, you know, if your parents leave the house, okay, and you knew they came back, let's say, let's say they left Friday night, they're coming back Monday morning. Right? You could probably do whatever you want between Friday, Saturday, Sunday, clean up your junk, you know, make sure the house is back in order, whatever it is, because you know they're coming back Monday. Well, Let's say, hypothetically, you don't know when they're coming back. Maybe they're coming back Friday night. Maybe Saturday morning, Saturday night, Sunday morning, right? So what, what do you do then? Well, you're not going to act the same way, right? And, the, and we don't act this way. We don't do good things because, oh, my goodness, we don't know when our parents are going to come back and they might catch us doing something bad. That's not the point of it. But the point is that we stay faithful and that when God comes back, that he finds us being faithful and devoted, Right? Why? Not because we're scared to do wrong things, but no, because we love him, right? We obey out of love, not out of fear, right? Because what does fear do? Well, we saw here that this guy was fearful of the king and what he would do, and he ended up being disobedient, right? But when we have that connection because God has shown us love and we love him back, that's what leads to our obedience, to doing exactly what Jesus told us to do. So in verse 12, he says, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So this nobleman is not Archelaus, but it's Jesus himself. And he himself is a nobleman, right? He, he comes from a noble lineage, right? Who does he come from? What king does he, does he come from in his lineage? David. David, right? He comes all the way back to David. And we see that in Jesus' lineage in the beginning of two of the Gospels. And Jesus here intends for us to see three points of comparison. The first one is he promises return, now with full recognition of his status as king to reign in the kingdom of God, right? First, he comes as a suffering servant. Second, he comes as a conquering king. So when Jesus comes back, and he hasn't come back yet to establish his physical kingdom, but he will, he's going to come as a reigning and conquering king of the kingdom of God. The reference here to a far country it means that he, that he cannot be expected to return very soon, right? So this was said literally about 2,000 years ago, 
right? So it's been about 2,000 years. That's a long time, right? In the grand scheme of things, it's not that long, but in comparison to our lives, that's a long time. So it's been a while since he's come back. The third thing is Jesus is hated by the leaders of Jerusalem. So we see the comparison here. The nobleman was hated by his countrymen. Jesus is hated by even his own countrymen, the, the leaders and the Jews. And again, not because Jesus was you know, a dictator or evil or harsh, right? That's not the type of man he was or exemplified himself as, but because he was the Messiah, right? He claimed to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And what that does is it threatens these Jews and these religious leaders of their power and of their righteousness. They didn't like that, right? So that's why they hated him. So in verse 13, it says, He called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and he said to them, Do business till I come. So he talks to ten, gives each one of them one mina each. And a mina, again, is a monetary unit. It's equivalent to about three months of wages today. So obviously that's, it's, it's a, a median, not, you know, it could be probably roughly, I want to say, eight to ten to fifteen thousand dollars equivalent. But that, that's not the point. The point is they each got the same amount. That's the point. Whether it was one dollar or eighty thousand dollars, they each got the same amount. And Jesus was expecting for them to do business with what they received, right? We've all received the same amount as Christians, as born-again believers. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do we do with that? Because Jesus has commissioned us and he has charged us to do something with it, right? And if you are a faithful servant, well, you want to do something with it because you've experienced it, you know it, you understand it. There's going to be something that happens. And I think there's many of us in here this morning who have been unfaithful servants, who aren't doing what God has called us to do and what has commanded us to do. Too many of us just live our lives living our lives apart from the gospel. We may know the gospel, we understand it, but it's not ingrained in our lives, right? It's, it's not a thing, you know, that we should be able to, to switch on and switch off. It's something that should be a part of our lives in every aspect, right? Whether that's going to church or going to school or staying at home, being on a sports team, whatever it is, you don't just do the gospel thing when we're around other Christians or when we're in church, Right? That's not the only time. And so God expects us, Jesus expects us to be faithful. This parable teaches that there will be an interim between Jesus' first and second coming. Right, And a faithful servant will be busy with the king's business while waiting for his return. And an unfit servant will try to get out of serving and carrying out the master's business. Because remember, what was the charge? Do business until I come. This is for all of us. Regardless if you're 14 or if you're 48, right? Like, let no one despise you because of your youth. And, and that includes you. Like, you don't despise your own self in thinking, well, I'm too young for this, right? That's, that should never be the case. God equips, regardless if you're 14 or 48, right? You have been given the, the same gospel. You've been given the same Holy Spirit. It's an even playing field. And you can't, you're held accountable now. Right? What are you going to do with the gospel that's been given to you? It says in verse 14, his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Why is that? He was of noble birth, right? He was qualified to be the king. He wasn't a hard and cruel master, right? He loved his servants. We see that. 
He healed them. He taught them. He fed them. He presented the kingdom of God to them. Right? But the Jews, in his time, did not desire to follow him. He wasn't what they wanted. He wasn't what they expected. Right? They wanted a king who would make them prosperous, powerful. But Jesus came as a humble man teaching about faith and repentance. And that's still happening today. And what's still happening today is there are many people, like we see in verse 14, who do not want Jesus to reign over their lives. Why? Because he's not what they want, or he goes against what they want. He goes against what they want to do and how they want to live. And we're seeing this more and more, guys, especially within the world. I don't, I don't know if you guys keep up with the news. I know I didn't when I was a kid, so I don't really think you guys do or expect you guys to. But it's, it's becoming more and more chaotic, not just in the sense of immorality, but now there's becoming more and more opposition to Christianity, to Jesus Christ. That there's people who absolutely hate Christians, but hate Christ even more. They hate the Bible. They hate the Word. We see, I've seen it in the news recently where they're, they're, they're ripping out Bibles, they're stomping on them, they're throwing them. You know, like there is an actual literal hatred for this king because they, they, they don't like the darkness being exposed, right? It goes against my feelings, my desires, my pleasures, right? It goes against everything. And so they hate him. It says in verse 15, and so it was that when he returned, right? He went to a faraway country. He returns. Jesus is coming back. Having received the kingdom, right? What is, he, what is he doing? Well, he's preparing the kingdom for us. He then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Remember, he told them to do business. Then came the first saying, Master, your minute has earned 10 minutes. That's, that's pretty good, right? Like we just see that he was faithful in the fact that he was actually doing business. I don't think or Jesus per se is worried about the, the, the quantity. He's just worried about the faithfulness, right? He's not worried about whether you, you've, you know, turned one minute into 10 or one into five or one into 8 million, right? I mean, you will be rewarded so based upon that, but what he's looking for is faithfulness, right? If you turn one into two, great. Jesus says that, that, that's faithful. You've done what I've commanded you to do, right? If, if you've turned one into 10, wow, that's great too. You've been faithful. And this is your reward, and we're going to see this in a second. He says in verse 16, Master, your minna has earned 10 minas. And so the master says to him, Well done, good servant. Because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Master, your minna has earned five minas. And likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. So he's examining the faithfulness of the servants and there is a just reward to that faithfulness. And the same goes for us as Christians. I don't know if you guys know this. Like, the beautiful thing is we're all going to receive, uh, well, not all, but everyone who's born again receives the wonderful gift of salvation and eternity in heaven with Christ. Right? That, that is the same thing we will all receive. But dependent upon what we do here on earth, between our acts and our, our deeds and our, our words, there are extra things that we can gain. I don't know if you guys knew this. Like, there are rewards. Right? I mean, Paul equates, you know, a lot of Christian life and to uh, sporting events, to running a race, to boxing. 
Like, there, there's rewards to finishing and to finishing well, right? There's crowns that we can receive dependent upon what we do in this life. There's, there's things that, there's positions we will receive in eternity based upon what we do in this life. And that's the cool thing. It's, it's positions. It's not a matter of, you know, money, material things. But no, he says, look, I will put you over 10 cities or five cities. There's a position, there's an authority that this, these men are going to receive or women are going to receive because of their faithfulness to the king. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And if you continue on in that chapter, you get the idea that there are rewards to what we do in this life. Isn't that awesome? Some of you are like, that's not fair. Well, you know what? Then go do your job, right? It's no different than the world we live in. You want money? What do you do? You work, right? And if you work harder and if you work longer, you get more money, right? I mean, that's common sense. That makes sense. That's throughout scripture too. We talked about it even on Wednesday night in the book of Ruth, where Ruth went and she picked the fields for her food. She, a widow, a woman, she went to work for it. Was some of the grain left behind by the farmers? Yeah, of course, that was, that was the love that was given in it, but it wasn't a handout, right? It wasn't just, hey, I picked it for you. Here's the basket of food. Here, you don't have to do anything. No, Ruth busted her butt to get the food that she needed, right? In the same sense for us as Christians, we need to do the same thing in being faithful with what God has given us, and there will be different rewards. Man, if you're lazy, that's what you, you're not, you're not going to receive anything, Right? If you're not faithful, you're not going to receive anything. I mean, I, I love that God gives us rewards because it, it gives us somewhat of a motivation. Even though our motivation should stem from love, there's still somewhat of a motivation because God's going to reward me. So as minna turns into 10 minas, right? Again, it's not, it's not the percentage of profit that he's looking for, right? But the fact that he's faithful to carry out his master's command, the king's command when he's gone. And what, one thing I like about what the first guy says in verse 16, he says, Master, your minna has earned 10 minas. He says, your minna, not mine. Right? He recognizes that anything that he has to begin with is not his. It's the king's. And what are you going to do with the king's minna? What are you going to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is it going to increase? And think about it this way, too. God gives the minna. We do the work, right? We are co-laborers with Christ. That's what the Bible tells us. We are co-laborers with him. And yet, the reward that we get is completely generous. It, it's, it's not even like it's like doing an hour of work and getting paid, you know, $10,000. That makes no sense, right? God is a generous God, right? He gives them 10 cities. The fact that he converted one minute into 10, right? It doesn't compare in the work that is done, but God is such a generous giver and rewarder for the things that we diligently and faithfully do. He's not a wicked king. Right? He's not an austere man, a harsh man, but he's kind and he's rewarding. That's who Jesus is. 
And so we see that the reward for faithfulness far exceeds the profit earned for the king. The kingdom given to this king was of infinite value, right? And the king did not depend on his servant's income, but it was all a test of faithfulness. It was all a test of faithfulness. And what we see, too, is as the nobleman responds to the first guy, is that the faithfulness shown shows their ability to take on more, right? If you've, if you've, shown, if you've been faithful with a little, you'll be given much. And that's one thing I've had to learn, guys, is I've, I've been in ministry or just in life in general, that no matter what happens, I have to be faithful to Christ. That is, that is my, my duty as a servant of the king. That you, as, a, as a teacher of the Bible, as a pastor, one of the hardest things is Sunday mornings because that's really when the enemy attacks really hard. There's times, and you guys maybe can't relate to this because you haven't been in this position, but I know Pastor Kevin can. I know many other guys can. That after I'm done teaching, sometimes I, I can be the most, I want to say depressed, but disheartened. And it could be the most biblical, best teaching I've ever given. And I can just be disheartened. And it, it has nothing to do with any one of you or me. It's just there, there's a spiritual realm to this, right? And there's, there's attacks that happen, and it's hard. And sometimes it's like, man, I just, I just want to quit. You know, sometimes I'm, I'm teaching and I'm, I'm watching. I, I, I try to pay attention to you guys because I care about you, but I'm also wondering, you know, is, is there... Is there reciprocation? Is there, is there listening? Is there understanding? And sometimes, and it may not be true, right? But this is what the enemy does. He's like, Jeffrey, that sucked. Like, they're not listening. They don't even want to be there. And that may be true. It may not be true. I don't know. But this is what the battle is, right? There was times in our ministry when, you know, two people would show up. Two kids would show up. And this is awesome. I love this. I mean, we're, we're packed today. And it's not about the numbers, but sometimes it can be really disheartening, you know, when no one shows up, right? You plan something, you do something, and then kids don't want to be there. It can be really disheartening. And so what God challenged me, especially through 2020, because that was a hard time ministry-wise, we were doing um, Bible studies Friday mornings, and literally one guy would show up. One guy. And, I, you know, in my flesh, I'm thinking, is this even worth it? Right? Like, what's the point of this? This is a waste of time. I'd rather have, you know, 20 guys there. Then it would be worth it. And then what God showed me as I was reading and studying and just pondering, he's like, you need to be faithful no matter what. On Sunday mornings, if they're listening or not, it's not dependent upon you. You be faithful. You do what I've asked you to do, and that's to teach the word of God. If they don't listen, that's not on you. If they don't respond to it, that's not on you. If one kid shows up, then that's one kid you can minister to. You've got to be faithful and little. And so in 2020, it was hard, guys. I mean, like, I mean, you guys, some of you were here. There was very little of us. It wasn't a lot of response. And so we had to be faithful. I mean, even when we started this ministry 11 years ago, something, 12 years ago, I mean, it was small. It was intimate. It was awesome, right? But we had to be faithful in the little things. And then God, you know, as in our faithfulness, he gave us more. He gave us more kids. He gave us more ministry opportunities. He gave us missions trips. He gave us uh, retreats, like we eventually started doing our own retreats, something that we were never capable of doing before. But it wasn't a matter of my ability, you know, or, you know, my smarts or my wisdom or my planning. It was all a matter of faithfulness, and God expanded that because of faithfulness. 
And so I, I say all that to encourage you that whatever you're doing, whatever, whatever it is, right, whether it's in the church or outside the church, God has called you to something. Be faithful in doing it. And the one thing that he's called all of us to be faithful in is the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? So maybe you're going to first priority. Maybe you're going to a Bible study at your school, and maybe two kids are showing up. Keep going. Be faithful, right? It's, again, it's not, it's not dependent upon that. I think of Isaiah, right? And, and God called him to go evangelize and share the gospel, and he says, how long should I do this? So until I tell you to stop. Well, nobody listens, Right, I think of um, Elisha, or Elijah, I can't remember, I always distinct, forget the two. Right, he calls down fire from heaven, nobody responds. He gets all depressed. God encourages him. Right? It's be faithful to him. I think of Noah, right? Noah, I mean, how long was he building that stinking boat for, the ark for? Was it, a, was it 100 years? 120. I mean, it was a long time, right? How many people came on the boat with him that weren't in his family? How many? None. None. After he w- built this entire ark and he told him, you know, judgment's coming, yada, 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 constantly. But he was faithful to do what God called him to do, and it wasn't dependent upon the response of people. Right? So, so be faithful in little. That's the point here. This tiny little nugget. Be faithful in the little, and God will give you more. Right? God will give you more. So, verse 20. It says, then another came saying, Master, here is your minna, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief, right? I'm so glad he hid it in a handkerchief, kept it safe in there, right? For I, refer- for I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. So the nobleman said to him, out of your mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it, with interest. He's saying, well, why? You did absolutely nothing. And if you truly did fear me, you'd have done at least something. But you did nothing. And you had a wrong understanding of who I am. Right? This is who you thought I was. It's not who I am. And I think there's many Christians and non-Christians today who have a picture and an idea of who God is, but it's not truly who he is. Because we are biblically illiterate people. Because we only know one side of God. And there's more to him than love. There's more to him than judgment. There's more to him than righteousness. Right? He's a lot of things. And they all equally balance him as God, as the, 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 the creator of this universe, who is perfect and loving and kind and holy and just. He is who he is. He says, I'm the great I am. But we have this lack of understanding of the whole of God. But here's the wonderful thing, guys, is that God has given us the Spirit of God so that we can know the things of God, right? So, so we, we have an extra, I don't know, helper. It's almost cheating in a sense to understand more of who God is because we have the gift of the Holy Spirit on top of having the Word of God where God's revealed himself. But many of us, we lack this understanding of who the king is. And so this man was afraid of the king, right? He was afraid that if he had invested the men of the king... Uh, that the king entrusted to him, that he might have lost it. He believed wrong things about the king, right? And his wrong thinking leads to disobedience. And this is where I want to encourage you this morning, especially with the title of this, is that there's many of us who have a wrong understanding of God. And there's this 
huge slogan, and it was a huge thing when I was a kid. I don't know, maybe you have a wristband on. The WWJD? You guys know that one? I mean, it's, it's not a horrible thing, but I'll explain to you why it's bad. What would Jesus do, right? What would Jesus do? The WWJD, you know the bracelet? So, like, you'd wear your bracelet, and then, like, you know, you'd be at school, and a kid would call you a bad name, and then you'd be like, what would Jesus do? You'd be like, flip the tables and punch them, right? Like, but see that, like, now, imagine this. If I asked you in that situation or any situation, what would Jesus do? We would all have a different answer. And I don't think that is exactly how we, we, um, we, we combat things and we do things. Right? I don't think that's how we get an understanding of this is what we should do and how we should live life, dependent upon what I think Jesus would do. Right? Because sometimes it's not biblical. Sometimes it's not correct. Sometimes it's not right. And the crazy thing is, too, guys, when it comes to Jesus Christ, you're not him. And the things that he went through and did, you won't. Right? You, you won't be tempted by the devil in the wilderness for 40 days the same way that Jesus was tempted because it was unique to him as the Son of God. There's many, you will never have to die on the cross. Right? You never have to, 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 to face the wrath of God in that sense for other people's sin. There's many things that Jesus did that were unique to him as the Son of God. So when I start to think, oh, well, I read this section of how Jesus handled this situation, maybe that's not for you like that because he's the Son of God and because he was trying to show us something that was greater than this is how you should handle the situation. But rather, what has, what has God done for us so that we know how to do things? Well, he's told us. So I think a better slogan than what would Jesus do is what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? Because here this man is thinking he's an austere man. This is what's going to happen. He had a wrong misconception. A wrong misconception. He had a misconception of who the nobleman was. Rather than doing exactly what the man said. Because what did the man say? Do business until I come. Do what Jesus said to do. And Jesus has told us plenty of things in the word and what we should do. Even things beyond just his literal words because we know that the word of God is his word, right? Is the word of, of, of God. We know John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, right? And so we get our instructions, we get our commands through the Bible, through scripture. And it's not a matter of interpretation or, you know, that I think this is what we should do and this is how we should do it. No, Jesus says this is what you should do and do it. It's pretty simple. What did Jesus say? John 14, 23 through 24 says this. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he'll do what I do. Is that it? If anyone loves me, what is he going to do? He'll keep my word. He'll keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He says, he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. This man, this nobleman, told his servant what he should, exact, what he should do exactly. And yet he didn't do it because he had a wrong misconception of who this man was. We need to have a good understanding of who God is which means that we're reading his word, and when we read his word, we obey it, and we don't do it out of fear, but we do it out of love, right? Because we love him, because he first loved us. 
So the wicked servant here does not see Jesus or the king as righteous and generous, but as hard and ruthless. He almost compares them to, to Herod or Archelaus, right? But that's not understanding of who Jesus is. And so he blames fear and lack of obedience really on the king. But it's, again, because he knew nothing about the king, he didn't know. But if he did, he would have lovingly obeyed. And Jesus calls this man wicked. And wickedness st- stems from unbelief and disobedience. So we see this wickedness come from. And we need to understand that it takes love and devotion to the king to produce obedience. Right? Because the first two servants, they obeyed not because of, out of fear, but out of love and devotion. And this is where we see their faithfulness. Right? Because they're love and they're devoted to the king. And why, are, why, are we, why do we love and why are we devoted to the king? Because he's loving. I mean, if, if you've met the king, right? If you are a servant of the king, you know that this is a king who, I mean, Jesus is literally on his way as he's sharing this parable. He's on his way as the king of the world to lay down his life for people who could care less about him, who were ungodly, the Bible says, who were enemies of him. He's about to lay down his life on their behalf. That's a loving king. That's someone who I want to be devoted to. That's someone who who I can reciprocate this love back to. And I wouldn't have done it otherwise. I wouldn't have loved him otherwise unless he first loved me, but he's shown me that love. In verse 23, we see Jesus saying, or the nobleman saying, and asking, why didn't you just put it in the bank? He didn't take the simplest the most conservative of steps even to increase some of the money by depositing it into the bank. And I don't think that's what God wants us to do, just to get away with the bare minimum, right? But I think the challenge for us is that we've been presented the gospel, what do we do with it? Like, have you ever shared the gospel with anyone? You don't have to answer this, but I want you to answer it in your own heart. Have you ever shared the gospel with anyone? Genuinely. Have you ever prayed with anyone? Have you ever even mentioned Jesus to your friends? I mean, if, if you haven't, I hope that is convicting. I hope it is. And I hope it's a challenge. Because you don't want to be found later on when we stand before Christ that we've, we haven't been worthy of what God has given us. Because I want to be found faithful. And it's not an easy thing, guys. Like, there's going to be a battle there's going to be times where you're not going to want to do it because your flesh is going to kick in, you're going to be tired, you know, you're going to be scared, whatever it is. But if you've met the king, how can you not share about the kingdom of God with others who aren't a part of the kingdom? Jesus challenges us with this. And there's a time when he's going to come back, right? And we don't know when that time is. So we need to be found faithful. In verse 24, he said to those who stood by, he says, take the minna from him and give it to him who has 10 minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. I don't know why they say that. Maybe they're like, well, that's not fair. Like, he's already got ten. Why would you give him one more? It says, For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and for, from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. The, the point of this is that the faithful are rewarded and the wicked are judged. Again, it's, it's common sense. It's righteousness. It's, it's, it's goodness. It's justice. Right? You, you get what you deserve. And the beauty of grace is that we get what we don't deserve because we have a good, loving king, right? But here, one of the servants was trusted, right? Given a minute to invest 
into the master, into the kingdom. But he proves to be wicked because he hoarded it. He hid it. He didn't do anything with it. And we as believers are entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what he told his disciples. This is what he told his followers. Not just for the few that he spoke to in this time, but for every one of us to come after. He says in Matthew 28, verse 18, he says, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Right? Not all that I have done, but all that I have said, all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of age. That's our goal, is to make disciples. Right? And how, where does that start? Well, that starts with presenting the gospel verbally. Right? Don't ever be misconceived in thinking, I can present the gospel in the way I live. People will see Jesus in me by how I handle myself. I mean, that's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Great. Like, you, people should be like, well, he's different. Why doesn't he drink alcohol? Or why does she, you know, not say this and watch these movies? Yeah, that, sh- that should be something. But that's not the gospel. <laughs> the gospel is verbal. The gospel is written. The gospel, it says, beautiful are, are the feet of those who are sent. Right? The preacher. It says, how, how can one be saved unless... Someone hears, I'm, I'm butchering it, but I'm paraphrasing it, right? And how can someone hear unless, unless someone speaks, right? And you should be the one that's speaking and sharing the gospel. There should be something in us that shares the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who don't, to those who don't know. In verse 27, but bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. And so Jesus picks back up with those who did not want to be a part of the kingdom, the ones who rejected him as king. I don't want you to reign over me. And Jesus says, well, this is what you deserve. This is your reward, right? You will be slain in front of me. This is what happens to those who do not want God to rule over them. They'll live their life, right? Maybe a pleasurable life mixed with whatever, but that's it. And then there's eternity, and then there's a separation from the king and not being a part of the kingdom. And you might be thinking again, man, this guy's harsh. This God is harsh, right? You read the Old Testament and you think, man, God, God is a God. He's different than the Jesus we see coming on the scene in Bethlehem because he's slaughtering people left and right. But again, that is our misunderstanding and our lack of understanding of who God is in totality, in his wholeness, in completeness, Right? The world, without understanding who God is, they think he's just love, right? He's just love. If our God was only loving, we would have the most unfair God in the world. And I think none of us, none of us like unfairness or injustice, right? Like that's, that's instilled in us to, to know that there is a difference between right and wrong, that there's, you know, rewards and consequences. We all understand that just by nature of who we are. And so if God was only love, then he wouldn't be God, right? But he's God, God is love plus some, plus other things. And so this may sound cruel, but remember, what did we just talk about? That, that God is loving, right? And so he's given us opportunities, given us chances over and over and over again. But there are consequences to those who reject the king of the kingdom, right? There's consequences to that. And so he says, 
they will be slain in front of me. Remember in Luke 19.10, the last verse we just read a couple weeks ago, it says the Son of Man has, has come, why? To seek and to save that which is lost. Why did Jesus come? So he can come and slaughter people? So that, so that he can send people to hell? No, he came, he came to save them. 